Good morning, friends. As we continue our second pass through these last wonderful chapters of the Gospel of Mark, 14, 15, and 16, uh, we're, as you know, going to focus on the theology of the cross that, that uh, is identified in those chapters. And as I said last week or the week before, this is not uh, an expositional pass through these last three chapters. We did that already, even though we took large portions at a time. Uh, this is a theology of the cross, and so we're, we're picking um, specific theological points out of the text to uh, help us understand a little bit more about ourselves, a little more about God, um, and uh, how we can um, grow spiritually knowing those things. And today's um, service has been specifically designed to help you see some important um, realities about God as they relate to you and your spiritual life, the, your development as a Christian. Uh, so let me, let me start by asking you the following. Does your sin cause you discouragement? Are you sometimes a little discouraged with the pace of your sanctification and wondering why it is so painfully slow. How come it is taking so long for my spouse to become like Jesus? <laughs> Questions like that. Or my children, or <laughs> whatever you want to plug in there. Um, but why does our sanctification seem to frustrate us at times? Why does it seem that our sanctification is progressing at a snail's pace. And that discourages a lot of Christians, at least I think it does. Well, in our text today, there is so much important theology wrapped up in the cross of Christ. I want you to think of all the doctrines, before we read the text, I want you to think of all the doctrines that we hold dear that are directly connected to the cross of Christ. The, all the doctrines of grace, for example, are directly or indirectly connected to the cross of Christ. All the doctrines of the church are connected to the cross of Christ. All eschatology is connected. In fact, I was struggling last week to recall any doctrine that's not directly or indirectly connected to the cross of Christ. One of the doctrines that the cross of Christ demonstrates clearly is the omnipotence of God. This doctrine is broad, of course, and includes the truth that God controls the beginning from the end and everything in between, the omnipotence of God. So the doctrine of God's omnipotence is connected to the cross of Christ also, and it is multidimensional, but specifically it reveals the following. As deflating and defeating as the cross was for the disciples of Jesus, everything that happened was planned down to the minute detail and all that took place was necessary to accomplish the redemption of God's people. Nothing that happened that last Passion Week of Christ was wasted. Everything that took place 
was purposed by God to accomplish your sanctification and mine, your salvation and mine. We could easily argue that the defeat of Calvary is the greatest victory of all time, couldn't we? So let's look at our text today. You have your Bible? Open it to Mark chapter 14 with me. And let's look at verses 10 and 11, and then we'll drop down to verses 18 through 21. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now drop down to verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, this is when they gathered in the upper room for their Passover celebration. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after the other, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as, as is written about him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And so as we think about this passage, at least from a human perspective, it seems that the betrayal, the arrest, the execution of Jesus was a great defeat for Jesus and his followers on the surface. But an important theological point from this story is that God always, God always accomplishes his purpose and is in the business of orchestrating the circumstances that do, in fact, transform his people. Let me say that again. God always accomplishes purposes. And it, he is in the business of orchestrating circumstances to transform you and me. So the circumstances you are facing are not random, unexpected, and out of control, they're in fact divinely orchestrated to create a person who is transformed into the image of Jesus. So listen to this passage again from Isaiah 46 that was read to you just a moment ago. I am God, verses 9 and 10, I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, now listen, you who worry about these things, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Not part, not, not just with the important people, all my purpose. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says that God works, quote, all things according to the counsel of his will. Not some things, not just spiritual things, not just church things, all things according to the counsel of his will. So the reason this theology that we're looking at this morning is so important to understand and embrace is because of how life goes. Your life is not made up of a bowl of cherries, has it been? 
No. You will, in fact, run into seasons of defeat, sorrow, extraordinary difficulty, and you may be tempted to become discouraged with your life, your lack of development or your lack of progress, or just your general circumstances. Anything can bring about discouragement in the Christian life, right? So if your vision is short-sighted or self-focused or off theological target in any way, you'll be in for a despairing battle. So perspective here, this theology here is critical to your survival. And so for the sake of that survival, through the inevitable dark and rough times that you will face in life, you may want to pay particularly close attention this morning. Maybe even take a note or two, who knows? However the Spirit leads. All right, so let's look at these three points that are in your bulletin. Spiritual defeat or failure, whatever you want to call it, is a God-ordained part of the believer's life. <laughs> Spiritual defeat or failure is a God-ordained part of the believer's life. Let me give you some Old Testament examples of failure. Misery loves company, so let's look at some examples. <clears throat> Adam and Eve. It starts out real well, doesn't it? <laughs> Adam and Eve, rebellion, pride, independence. Abraham, who's called the father of faith in numerous places in Scripture, how many failures do we see in the life of Abraham? A lot, don't we? Lying about his wife's identity, leaving the place where God told him to stay, trying to accomplish God's will through human effort, on and on it goes, are all instances that he didn't trust God for the outcome. The father of faith, Jacob, who was renamed by God Israel, who is the namesake of the Israeli nation today, his name, Israel, or Jacob, rather, means heel grabber. How would you like that for a name? Hey, heel grabber, get over here. Uh, he, he was a deceiver from a very young age. His mom coached his deception skills. Now, there's a good mom for you. Uh, he, sur he survived by manipulating people. This is Jacob the literal father of the Israel nation, Israeli nation. David, the king of Israel's history, most revered. Parental failure, purity failure, leadership failure. If this were on your resume, you wouldn't get a job anywhere. So let's look at some New Testament examples in case you think, you know, everything's changed. New Testament examples, Peter, uh, the leader of the Apostolic Twelve, the leader of the New Testament church, Satan used him, Satan used him to try to influence Jesus to avoid the cross altogether. And of course, Jesus recognized this and told Satan to get behind his back. Peter for, failed more than once, though. He had a few famous spiritual miscues, didn't he? His most famous failure, of course, was his denial of any association with Jesus whatsoever. Don't know the man, swearing up and down in Galilean. Uh, 
Um, and this, of course, took place on the night that Jesus was condemned. If there was ever a time where, from a human perspective, Jesus needed people to stand up for him, defend him, it was that night. Not the leader of his following group. No. Peter miserably failed. Judas, the one we've just been reading about here in Mark 14, of course was not a believer, but everyone thought he was, didn't they? They gave him the money bag, in, in fact, to keep track of. But Judas fooled everyone except Jesus, according to John 13. After all the time that he spent with Jesus and the other disciples, and after all the privilege that Judas experienced during these three years that he followed Jesus, he betrayed him. This betrayal, of course, led to the execution of Jesus. This was an epic failure. So we have the facts in front of us that failure is part of human experience, whether you're a believer or not, right? So let's look how God uses failure or defeat and turns it into victory. How does he turn tragedy into triumph? Victory from defeat. So Mark has been arguing throughout his book that we've been studying that Jesus is the divine solution to chaos. If Jesus, in fact, is the solution to chaos of sin, listen, here's where it starts getting personal. How are we to think about the chaos and dysfunction that is perpetually in our own lives? If, in fact, Jesus is the solution, God's answer to our spiritual dysfunction, to our spiritual chaos... Why are we still perpetually in it? Well, let's see what we can learn here. What can we, in fact, learn about God from the stories of these biblical characters and from the theological text that we're in here in Mark 14 that will directly impact us today in our daily lives from here forward? First of all, we need to see that God turns defeat into victory because he specializes in renewal. This is what God specializes in. Turning losers into winners. Failures into victorious people. So how does he do this? How does God transform us from who we are into what he wants us to be? First, by divine power. By divine power. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 and 24 says the following. For the word of the cross, there we are, theology of the cross, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, that is a progressive reality, we are saved, but we are also being saved. We're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. But for those of us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. How does God transform us from what we were to what we will be? By the cross of Christ. That's how. By the power that's demonstrated there. Now, look at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How does God transform us? How does God make us become like Jesus? 
by the power of the cross. The same thing, the same power, the same orchestration of all events that took place at the cross is currently changing you into his likeness. Paul said it like this to the Galatian church, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, that is, crucified on the cross with Christ, spiritually speaking. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave, gave himself for me. How does Paul live out this transformed life? How does he continue to grow in Christ's likeness? Through what took place on Calvary. So it's not by your efforts, not by your power, but by God's that he's able to do what he's promised, able to accomplish his purposes, Ephesians 1.11, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Paul says this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, this is God speaking to um, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So it isn't in your ability, in your knowledge, in your experience, to become like Jesus. It solely rests on the power of the cross of Christ. Now, it sounds to me that we ought to embrace those things in our lives that demonstrate human weakness. Things like failure, for example. You got, you got some whoppers in your history? Failures, sin, things that you're embarrassed to share at small group? Maybe you ought to rethink that. According to this passage, it's through your weakness that Christ's power is demonstrated. So God specializes in renewal through divine power. And secondly, as he referred to in 2 Corinthians, through divine wisdom. How is God accomplishing these things, these uh, transformations from defeat to victory, from tragedy to triumph, through his divine power, and secondly, by his divine wisdom. To see God use our failures to accomplish his purposes is awesome and requires not just divine power, but infinite wisdom. How is it that God's going to use your miserable history to bring glory to himself. Instead of you being embarrassed by your past, how is it going to be the platform for your sanctification? Your failures into victories, really? Yeah. This is the point of the day. This is a theology of the cross. You may think that you can navigate your life and its challenges without God. You may think that you have 
plenty of resources, like you can read blogs, podcasts, and have plenty of friends that have all the information you need to find your way through this maze of life. But Paul specifically states that it is not by might nor by human wisdom that God transforms our chaos into calm. No matter how instinctually wise you may think you are in the matters of life, the Bible makes it sufficiently clear that our own wisdom is faulty. 1 Corinthians 1, the whole chapter is about that. And many other places in Scripture deal with it. So let me give you some biblical examples of how in God's specializing nature he turns defeat into victory. Let me give you some biblical examples of the very people I've already mentioned that were epic failures. Abraham, for example, step by step building his faith. Read the story of Abraham. It is an incremental development of Abraham's faith by bringing him increasingly more difficult circumstances to deal with. Increasingly more failure resulted in a deeper walk of faith in the life of Abraham. The reason he is the father of faith is because of his failure. Jacob, God took him to the edge of himself to show him that only God can accomplish his purposes in him. David, God took everything away from him, everything, including his kingdom, his family, all good thoughts of him by his people. He took all that away from him to show him that his only hope was God. Not his popularity, not his wonderful children, not his job, God alone. And then we back up to Adam and Eve. God promised them a savior to solve the chaos of sin right after they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.15. So let's dig into a little bit of Adam and Eve's circumstances a bit to learn how to cope with our own failure, all right? So shift with me to the life of Adam and Eve and how we can learn to cope with our own failure based on what we see in them. You know, we normally aren't thankful for the sin of Adam and Eve. We usually end up blaming them for our problems, right? If it weren't for that stupid Eve, we would have great marriages, you know, no pain in childbirth, uh, none of this weeds and thorns in the pasture. If it weren't for Eve. And then Adam joined in. So how do we think about this? And, and we must begin by saying if we blame them for the crash of the human race, we just need to insert anybody else we want from human history into that story and see how they would have done. Right? For example, you. Um, I think every last one of us would have failed miserably just like they did. So how has God turned the tragedy of Adam and Eve into triumph through their failure? Let's, let's see the answer from biblical characters. All right, Peter. Was Peter defeated? Yeah. <laughs> Big time. He was in despair, if you remember. He wasn't sure Jesus wanted to see him again. Remember? He was defeated. But God did a miracle of grace in his life during the period of defeat. 
After Jesus rose from the dead, he personally invited Peter to meet him. You remember John 21, one of my favorite passages? Um, Jesus restored Peter. He grabbed Peter's heart in that setting on the shore of Galilee, set it on fire with a mission that would last his lifetime and influence millions of believers, including every person in this room. Judas, which is the focus of our text today, this is, this is uh, what got me excited during the week, thinking about this particular text that we've read, about Judah, Judas's epic failure and how it really transformed the human race, his failure. The religious leaders, if you'll look at Mark chapter 14, verse 1, the religious leaders wanted to uh, delay the arrest of Jesus until after Passover, right? That's what verse 1 says. Um, and the reason they wanted to do this is they wanted Jerusalem to be back to normal post-Passover feast conditions. A lot less people, more controllable environment, etc., where they could arrest and deal with Jesus without, you know, the fear of turning Jerusalem completely upside down and a risk uh, that that would involve. But when was Jesus crucified? They wanted to wait until after the Passover. When was Jesus crucified? On Passover, right? <laughs> yeah. In the same way, Satan wanted to delay or at least disrupt God's timetable of having God's Son, the Lamb of the world, executed on Passover. Satan knew what Passover was all about. He knew how important the timing was to the accomplishment of Old Testament prophecy and the fulfillment of all Old Testament types and pictures. Satan knew these things backwards and forwards. He was instigating Judas and the religious leaders to murder Jesus, but just on a different day. Please. So even though Satan is very powerful and had taken captive the hearts and passions of the religious leaders and Judas, he could not override the sovereign will and plan of God. God is more powerful and more wise than Satan, and so his plan succeeded as Satan's failed. You know, we, we may think that it was Satan's victory to see Jesus put to death, but in fact, it was God's victory. Remember Jesus' dying words? It is finished. And, and those were not words of defeat. He was not saying, uncle, I give up. Please stop. No. He was declaring the work of redemption, the salvation of mankind was, in fact, complete. God's justice had been satisfied. Sin had been atoned for. Victory was secured. It is finished. Satan, on the other hand, as I said, would have loved to see Jesus murdered on Calvary on any other day, but this one. When Jesus was being nailed to the cross on that Good Friday, it was the same time that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. It was the exact fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and types. All the things pictured in the Old Testament sacrificial system came to its ultimate and triumphant fulfillment the moment that Jesus was nailed to that cross. 
So Judas wasn't a pawn of Satan. He was, a used, he was used by God to accomplish the greatest event in human history, even though everything he did was massive sin. <laughs> wow. The death of God's Son, the fulfillment of all Old Testament messianic prophecy and the Savior of mankind was fulfilled because of a sinning man named Judas. Satan's timing was off. Oh, Satan wanted to use Judas, but Satan can't control time or the passions of men. He can influence the passions of men, but he has his limitations that God does not. So Judas wasn't used to, uh, or wasn't used against his will, I should say. Judas was greedy. He was disillusioned. Judas was selfish. God wasn't forcing him in any way to do something he didn't want to do. He wanted to do exactly what he did. This is the mystery behind God orchestrating all events of mankind for his purposes, even sinful things. God in his sovereign omnipotence orchestrated every detail of what happened that week and what happened every week before and after, including what happens in your life today and tomorrow, to accomplish his purposes. And on that week, to accomplish our redemption through every player that was involved. Divine power, divine wisdom. As egregious a sin as it was for Judas to betray Jesus, God was in complete control of every step. The satanically influenced betrayer was fulfilling specific, specific biblical prophecy. Judas's betrayal was part of the eternal plan of redemption. Now, now I want you to think in a, not, not about Judas so much, but about you, yourself, and your sin and your failure. So here are some exhortations from failure. I want you to see the way God uses personal failure to accomplish his purposes in your life and through your life in the lives of others. Yeah, God uses your sin to accomplish his purposes for me. When all I can do is complain about your attitude or your laziness or whatever it is that I can complain about, God is actually using that to transform me into his likeness. Your sin benefits my sanctification. This is no, not seen anywhere better than in marriage. My sin is conforming my wife into the image of Christ. And I don't want to minimize sin, of course. Um, but God is not surprised by my sin or yours. He knows we are all dust, doesn't he? The plan of redemption is based on the ubiquity of sin in every human being that has ever lived, except Jesus. The plan of redemption, which centrally includes the cross of Jesus Christ, is based on human need and through that need, the exaltation of God in meeting that need. So, we can carefully and humbly say that sin, our sin, my sin, my failure is part of God's plan to exalt his loving and gracious character. 
Judas's sin, the purpose was to exalt God's loving and gracious character. Do we believe Romans 8.28 or not? All things, or is it just some things? Is sin included in all things? Yes. My sin, Judas's sin, your sin, is for our good and God's glory. That's mysterious, isn't it? It is. We would not know anything of God's grace and mercy if it weren't for the sins of all these that have gone before us that I've mentioned this morning, biblical characters. We know about grace and mercy because of how God treated Abraham, Isaac, David, and Peter, don't we? If they hadn't sinned, we would not know of God's grace or his mercy and forgiveness in Christ. We would be personally unfamiliar with all these important character qualities of God if it weren't for our own sinful failures. Psalm 103 tells us that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. So please don't receive this as an encouragement for further sin. All right? I do not want to be accused of that or responsible for that. Uh, that particular perspective, believe it or not, has actually been embraced by some, but it's spiritually lethal. Listen to Romans 5. Paul addresses it on point. Sorry. Uh, Romans 5.20 through chapter 6, verse 2. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Aren't we happy for that? Where your sin increases, grace abounds more. And, and here's where Paul catches himself and addresses the obvious problem. If you're told, hey, your sin glorifies God, what are you going to think of as a sinner? Hey, let's keep sinning. Right? Paul addresses that. <clears throat> grace abounds all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You can't think that way as a Christian, even though it is a reality. Romans 2.4 helps us think about this. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't, don't be deceived, sinner. Just because God hasn't directly addressed your sin, whatever it might be, it's meant to lead you to repentance. Does God care about your sin? Yes. This is why Jesus died. This is why all the pain and suffering took place 2,000 years ago. Friends, we need to apply God's patience to our sin so that we can come to a place of repentance, not so that we can enjoy more sin. 
In a mysterious way, God, who is never the author of sin, uses sin to accomplish his purposes of grace and mercy in your life. Even though God uses your sin for his glory and our good, good like repentance, contrition, humility, passion for holiness, are all a result of our sin, all things there include the glory of God. So, even though God uses your sin for his glory and our good, his kindness is not to be taken as a license to sin. No. God is not indifferent to your sin. He remains angry at sin. He continues to discipline those who do sin. But through all of life's defeats and failure, God has a purpose to bring about glorious transformation in each of us. Philippians 1.6, Paul said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What he's doing will be accomplished. Isn't that good news? Friends, that's good news. I want to hear at least one amen. amen. There's more than I needed. Okay, good. Thank you. The song we sang earlier, look at your bulletin. Uh, whatever my God ordains is right. Did you believe what you're singing? Or do you sing all sorts of country western songs? <laughs> what, what are you talking What are you doing? Uh, whatever my God ordains is right. And it says everything that happens, he ordains. So everything is right. Of course, your sin isn't right, but the accomplishment through your sin is right, somehow. Look at the words that we sang. He is my God, though dark my role, my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. That doesn't mean you won't sin, but you won't eternally fall. And so we leave it all to him. Next stanza. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content whatever he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. I patiently wait. I patiently wait. Whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart. I take it all unshrinking. Friends, God is in the business of transforming sinners, of transforming us into Christ's likeness. And he uses our sin to do it. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who called you is faithful, he will do it. So as slow and unmeasurable as your sanctification seems, God will accomplish his purposes in you. He will transform you. He will turn failure into victory. He will turn tragedy into triumph. You keep following. You keep repenting. You keep pleading. And you'll wake up one day like Jesus. Probably not till the last time you wake up. But that day's coming. Right? This morning, we have the great privilege of the Lord's Supper that reminds us of these good things, doesn't it? Indeed. And we can't help but see our sin 
portrayed in the elements, can we? I mean, it, it's, they're there. Why the broken bread? Why the juice? Those re things represent the broken body and spilt blood. And why was his body broken? Why was his blood spilt? For my sin. Right? So we can't help see that the cross of Christ is everywhere in our Christian experience. It reminds us of our sin. It reminds us of our Savior. It gives us confidence that God, in fact, does accomplish his purposes in all of human history, but especially in your life and mine. The words of institution, I'm going to read from, I normally read from 1 Corinthians 11. That's, they're clear and succinct, but since we're in Mark 14, I'm going to read the words of institution from Mark 14. These are Jesus' words recorded. And I think that's important today. Um, so, uh, as I read these words and then pray, I'm going to ask the elders to come forward uh, and you to consider uh, the things that you've heard this morning relating to the cross of Christ and God using your sin to do you good and bring him glory. And if there is, if there is some sin that you have yet to turn from, repent of, then now's the time, right? Notice as I read here that Judas was dismissed prior to the serving of the first Lord's Supper. The point is the Lord's Supper is for those who have committed themselves to Christ, not those who are pretending. If you're pretending and you know it, please don't come forward, all right? You're just heaping up more guilt on your own head for the day of judgment. Uh, but if you're a genuine follower of Christ and, have, and find yourself kind of stuck in sin or some uh, revolving door of sin, then, then confess it again and come forward and enjoy the blessing of Christ through the elements, okay? Don't sit there and pout. Um, get up here and be nurtured, be encouraged by the Holy Spirit, which is intended in the elements. Okay? So I'm going to read, then I'm going to pray, and elders sometime in there come up and will serve you coming down the middle. And you can take your elements back to your seat and take them whenever you're ready. Okay? So here are the, <clears throat> the words of institution from the Lord's mouth in Mark chapter 14. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it and broke it and gave, he gave it to them and said, take this, take, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Oh, Father, we lift up our hearts and minds uh, in thanksgiving and praise as we consider your infinite power and wisdom in the person and work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. To think that as horrible and uh, egregious our sin is and what it cost you, God, 
Father, Son, and Spirit to accomplish our redemption is, is uh, shattering to us, causes us heartache, and yet, strangely, we find ourselves encouraged that we see you, our Creator, in new light, new perspective, new glory that we hadn't known before. So we thank you for your wisdom in transforming us into the people of God, the, the followers of Christ, the image of Christ in spite of our sin. Lord, we give you all the glory for these things. Jesus, you, in fact, our Savior, for spilling your blood, dying in our place. Amen.